Well, let's pray as we open God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for that still, small voice that we hear as we quiet our hearts. And now as we come to your word this morning, we pray that all voices but yours would be silenced in our heart and we would hear your word written so many years ago that we would hear it as a word for us, a word for now, a word that is transformative, a word that is filled with your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're continuing our series, Square One. We took a break last week for a really good reason, to celebrate 150 years. But today we pick it up again in Acts chapter 15. Here's the question I want you to think about. Have you ever been discouraged by conflict? Maybe conflict in your family. I can think of some real conflict, especially when we had teenagers in our house. Or maybe conflict with a neighbor. We had a neighbor who just did not like it when we added a fence, even though we said we're going to add a fence and the city had approved it. Or maybe it's conflict in the church, or maybe it's the conflict that we have just been blessedly relieved of on our nightly news with all the political ads. You know, in a fallen world, conflict is inevitable. Human beings are going to have conflict. And today, we're going to look at how the early church discussed and debated and eventually resolved their first major conflict. The issue that was before them was the message of the gospel itself. The stakes couldn't have been higher. What is the gospel message and who gets included in the kingdom of God as full members of the body of Christ? Now this conflict had been building up as Paul and Barnabas had been traveling. Here's their first missionary journey. They set off from the church in Antioch up on the right-hand side of the screen. At least it's to my right. And then they took some kind of sailing vessel over to the island of Cyprus. And there they preached the gospel. And they continued on sailing to what is now Turkey and traveling through that region from town to town. And if you read this first missionary journey, you can read it in Acts 13 and 14, you will see that in Salamis and Paphos and all across the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas and their fellow missionaries followed the same strategy. They went to the synagogue first to preach the gospel. They continued the strategy when they went to Pisidian Antioch and Iconium, synagogue first. And there in the synagogue with people that knew the Old Testament, they preached about Jesus the Messiah and about his resurrection. And they showed in detail how the Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. 
And in the audience were, of course, Jews, some of whom became followers of the way, followers of Jesus. But there were also Gentiles attached to those synagogues. People like Cornelius, they were called God-fearers. These were people that had been deeply attracted to the Old Testament moral law and had gone through a process of conversion to worship the God of Israel. These people were willing to obey the Old Testament law. They'd already had that conversion. But then they heard the gospel and heard how in Jesus Christ, all would be welcome. But folks, the gospel message could not be contained in the synagogue. As Paul and Barnabas continued to travel through, through Turkey, through what is now Turkey, the power of God began to break out the old wineskins could not hold the gospel. And it was in Lystra that these first missionaries skipped the synagogue, no mention of the synagogue. They went into the marketplace and just began preaching to whoever was there. And in their audience were Gentiles who knew nothing about the God of Israel. These were people who worshipped many other gods, gods like Zeus, and the other gods of the Greek pantheon, but gods from their native land, from uh, Persia, from India, from wherever they had come. These were idol worshipers. And Paul and Barnabas, and you can read this in chapters 13 and 14, preached the gospel message in a way that never even mentioned the Old Testament for the very first time. Here was good news that spoke directly to people capturing their hearts and minds that there was a savior who came for all people. And many came to know the Lord. So Paul and Barnabas finished that journey and returned to the church in Syrian Antioch, their home church, full of joy because of how the Holy Spirit had worked through them to bring people from every tribe and tongue and nation to Christ. But then the conflict came. Not everyone was joyful. Some Jewish Christians pushed back. They claimed that the Gentile converts must be circumcised to, to be saved. Now, that may not mean a lot if you are one half of the human race, but just imagine if you're a guy. That's a big deal. But it's much deeper than an outward sign of circumcision. And so the way Luke describes it, this opposition brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. It, it, was, a, it was a first good old-fashioned church fight. So they wanted to resolve the dispute. And so the early church leaders, like Paul and Barnabas and others, traveled to Jerusalem and you can see where they went from Antioch down to Jerusalem. And on the way, they would meet with churches and stay with people and tell them how God had been at work. But they knew that what awaited would be a council of all the leaders of the church. Now, unlike later councils, probably the most famous being Nicaea, where the Nicene Creed was written, 
where the debates were about fine points of doctrine, like what's the difference between the human and divine nature of Christ? What was at stake in this very first church council? We call it the Jerusalem Council, was the nature of the gospel itself and who would be included in the family of God. And this debate helps us understand three crucial things about the gospel. First, how does the gospel save? Second, how does the gospel free? And third, where does the gospel lead? So let's look at each of these in turn. How the gospel saves. Continuing from where Lindsay left off, the apostles and elders met in Jerusalem to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done, God had done among the Gentiles through them. So how does the gospel save First, by bearing witness to the human heart through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Think about it. How were you saved? Did you perform certain rituals that led you to believe? Did you say a magic formula that created a new heart in you? Did you convince yourself of the truth of the gospel? Did the message capture your mind and heart? The answer is and always is that God revealed to you a truth that was hidden from you. And you entered into a relationship that brought salvation by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is how it happens for every human being regardless of their previous faith background or their culture or the language they speak. It's happening today all over the world in powerful ways, and people are rejoicing. We are rejoicing as we hear reports from our mission partners. So Peter and Paul, and Peter makes this point so eloquently to the other leaders of the church, they were not saved through the work that they did for Jesus Christ. Instead, they received the gospel as a gift. They left their nets and began to follow Jesus as his apprentices. And now the risen Christ through the Holy Spirit was performing that same miracle through ordinary human beings like Paul and Barnabas. The Bible calls what happened to these believers salvation by grace through faith. We sang about it so beautifully in our song, Just As I Am, Without One Plea. 
The gospel saves us solely by the grace of Christ. Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither they, neither our fathers or we have been able to bear? See, Peter knew that the law was a great burden. He knew there were so many laws, over 600 laws, that you had to keep it straight all the time, and that you were always failing. You were always in need of a sacrifice to experience forgiveness. That Jewish law, with all of the additions over the years, had become a heavy yoke. The good news of the gospel is in our fam that famous passage when Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, why is Jesus' yoke easy for us to bear? Because he obeyed the law of Moses perfectly. But when he sacrificed his life for the forgiveness of sin, when he fulfilled the law perfectly, he did that on our behalf and on behalf of the whole world. And so that all we need to do to be saved is to receive the gift of his grace. He did the work, we received the gift of salvation. Paul summarized this for the Galatians for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And the Gentiles that Paul and Barnabas had encountered clearly had faith. They believed the gospel. Their hearts had been cleansed by their faith. And in this culture where cleanliness was so important, Peter is saying, the Gentiles are perfectly clean. God had cleansed their hearts by faith. They are saved. The ceremonial law will add nothing to the work of the Holy Spirit in their hearts. This is the great news of the gospel. Jesus has justified us by faith alone. Through Christ, we've been set right with God and counted innocent because on the cross, Jesus took on all our sin and gave us all of his righteousness. So James continues with his speech. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon, Simon Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. 
For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read on the, in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So to summarize quickly, what James is saying is that the gospel of grace through faith was always God's intention. It was always for Jews and Gentiles, for everyone, everywhere. From the beginning, from the call of Abram, he was to be and his family and descendants a blessing to all the nations, all the Gentiles. But the Jewish people had taken this incredible message of God's love and grace and had put it in a container that could not hold it. And as people began to experience the grace of God, they realized that it brought great freedom. So let's look, let's skip ahead and see how the gospel frees. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you. This is James' letter to the Gentile Christians in all the churches. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. This is the resolution of the conflict. The Jerusalem Council drafts a letter and sends it to the Gentile believers. They've made a decision. The Gentiles do not have to come under the yoke of the law of Moses. There is freedom in the gospel. But here's the question. If it frees us, then why add these four requirements? That's a good question. This is how you resolve conflict. This is the wisdom of the early church. First, and most importantly, the gospel has freed the Gentiles and all who trust in Jesus from saving ourselves. The people that were arguing for putting the law of Moses upon the Gentiles wanted to put the entire burden of the law. But that would go against the gospel because we are not saved by our works, but by faith alone. So the council basically decides that these new Christians don't have to become Jews in order to become Christians. The gospel has freed them from pursuing a faith that has all these requirements. Folks, this may seem like, well, Randy went to seminary and he was really interested in all these arcane things, but we need to hear the message of this first council today because we are always trying to put law where God puts grace. We're always afraid that if we don't do it just right, something bad is going to happen. There's that voice in our head. I have that voice because I, have, I had two parents who had that voice in their head because their parents had it in their head and it goes all the way back to the first parents. We're always trying to prove ourselves to God. But think about it. If you had to save yourself, how would you ever be sure you were good enough? 
How would you ever know that you had obeyed enough? How would you ever be assured that on the day that you meet Jesus Christ, the word that you will hear is well done, good and faithful service, not because of your works, but because of his work on the cross, which was transferred into your account. You wouldn't know. In Christ, the Gentiles and each one of us have already come under the law. We've been judged by it. But on the cross, Christ bore the punishment that we deserved. And in his resurrection, we receive salvation and eternal life. We have been fully accepted by God as if we had always obeyed. So we are not just forgiven, but the slate has been wiped clean. We have been welcomed as an adopted child of God. All right, but I still have to get to these requirements, don't I? Four, no idols. That's Leviticus 17. No sexual immorality, Leviticus 18. No drinking blood, that's Leviticus 17. And no eating strangled meat, Leviticus 17. Why have any requirements at all and why these four? Why have any requirements at all? Because the gospel always gives us freedom, yes, but it's freedom for a life of joyful obedience. See, the gospel is the fulfillment of Ezekiel's prophecy that God would write his law on our hearts. The gospel is more than just being unburdened from the law. It's also releasing our hearts to obey God's will. And these requirements were critical for the early church. They were given by James to help the Gentiles create unity with the Jewish believers and any unbelieving Jews that might be offended. And the requirements all centered around the dinner table. To this day, Orthodox Jews still observe these four and many other dietary laws. And so if Gentile and Jew are going to eat together for the sake of unity and the expansion of the gospel, all believers are asked to obey these, these three requirements all around food. And I, I, I do this. They're not hard to do. Have you ever eaten meat that's really... Cook it first. Just cook it. <laughs> the last requirement, sexual immorality, is at the very heart of the moral law, the heart of the Ten Commandments. And we are called to always live in joyful obedience to God's clearly revealed will. But don't get it wrong. We never obey to be justified. Nothing we can do can merit our salvation. But once we are freed by the gospel and our hearts are transformed, our hearts, our wills are freed for a life of joyful obedience. We obey for love for God and for one another. So this makes no sense 
unless you've been filled with the Spirit. You've experienced salvation. It makes no sense unless you know that God's love for you can never be shaken, that you never need to be anxious or afraid about your destiny as a child of God. But when you experience that free grace of God, something happens. You have a power in you to obey the moral law of God that you didn't have before. You have the power of the gospel to be led into a life of obedience to God's will. And that leads us to the last point, where the gospel leads. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Now this council meeting could have gone terribly wrong. It was a divisive issue that could have split the early church. But it didn't. And every one of us who were not born Jewish are here because they resolve this seminal conflict. And that's because the gospel always leads somewhere. It leads to the unity of the church. Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus found a way to eat together, to worship together, to love one another across their cultural differences. In Jesus Christ, disunity cannot abide. Of course, we're going to have differences, but as we open ourselves to the Holy Spirit, God will bring unified hearts. And as the gospel brings us together in unity, it also pushes us out to others to share this good news. So yes, there are going to be serious times of disagreement, even in the church. And we have here in Acts 15 the biblical model for how to handle such issues. Obedience to Jesus Christ, his gospel, and love for one another. If we are unified and empowered by this gospel, we will be thrust out into mission as the early church was. We will welcome people in spite of their differences because the grace of God has made us all one in Christ. We will see and experience for ourselves the freedom that comes from the gospel. We will see miracles happen. People set free in ways that can only be explained by God's grace. I became a Christian as a freshman in college, and I've told that story before. And I remember being so excited about my new faith that I, of course, went home and told my parents about it. And they thought I had joined a cult. <laughs> and I said, no, it's, it's a Presbyterian church where this happened. And, my mom said, well, I grew up in the Lutheran church. <laughs> they didn't get it. But I was just recently, a year ago, uh, next month, my brother-in-law died, my sister's husband. And I flew out to be there for the memorial service. And my sister thanked me because I was the only one of her siblings who could make it. My older brother was snowed in with 30 inches of snow. And my younger brother was in Helsinki working for the State Department. So she thanked me. And for the first time 
in my memory, she said, Randy, what happened to you when you went to college? You used to be a real jerk. <laughs> it was, you know, it took her, how many years? That's like 40, over 40 years ago. And it reminded me of the day after all my attempts to share my faith with my parents, God and his great sense of humor, my dad uh, got Alzheimer's and my mom took care of him for three years and finally she needed help and we hired this wonderful couple from Fiji and they were devout Christians. And for the next three years of my father's life and for years after, they took care of my parents. And at each of their memorial services, the entire Fijian choir from this little church showed up. And all my parents' friends who had never, never went to church except for a memorial service or maybe a baptism heard the gospel through Fijian believers. All my eloquent arguments didn't work. It was the love that they experienced by people that came to know Jesus Christ, experience his freedom in the, in the, on the island of Fiji. Folks, if we will remain faithful to the biblical gospel, God will give us opportunities to share it widely. Let me end with this distinguished gentleman, J. Gresham Machen. He was a professor at Princeton Seminary, part of a group that felt led to leave that seminary in the 1920s and establish Westminster Seminary. And here's his comment on this text. These Jews said that a man who believes in Christ and keeps the law of God the best he can and then is justified. Paul taught that as a man, one first believes on Christ, then is justified before God, then immediately proceeds to keep God's law. This is the proper order of the gospel. When we realize that we believe first and then are justified and then keep the law, we are stunned into silence at the free gift of grace. And that happened in that early church council. The assembly fell silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul relate what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. There was silence in the middle of this contentious debate. Why is that? Because they recognized the wonder of the gospel. And they listen, and their hearts are stirred. Friends, we can discover anew the wonder of the gospel. We can know and be known by a personal God. And as we enter this Advent season, in a couple of weeks, I am praying that each of us would be so open to God that we fall silent in wonder and awe as we rejoice in the biblical gospel, a gospel that frees us from the burden of the law and sets us free to live lives of joyful obedience. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you.
that you called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You gave us the freedom of the gospel, hearts that are transformed, and Lord, help us to live lives of joyful obedience to all that you call us to do each day. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.